My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. I have more Animorphs news that we can cut back into the beginning of the episode. Another Michael Gray announcement on Twitter. I don't know how reliable these are because there's only been one and it hasn't panned out yet. But anyway, (laughs) there are official Animorphs audiobooks being recorded now. (gasps) Michael Grant has said he's already heard casting calls for Jake and Rachel narrators. Oh my god. So I know that, you know... Rena and several other people have their own Animorphs mm-hmm. audiobooks projects, but it is pretty exciting. That That's awesome. There are official ones happening soon as well. Beep, beep, boop, 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 boop. End of new segment. <laughs> so I just want to say, before we say anything else, I'm so glad I can now express my true feelings about David. Because last time, Ted and I were working so hard to be like, okay, we don't want to let Gray know that he's a complete scumbag. Let's pretend, you know, know. it could go so, either way. I gave the Animorphs <laughs> such a hard time. <laughs> You did. And he's actually, he's the scum of the earth, and we just didn't want you to know. The thing about him is no one he's likes him. the worst. Yeah, you know what he did in this book, Ray? He killed Tobias. That's Wait, what he did he, in this book. He didn't kill Tobias. Tobias comes back. I've seen him on covers. Okay, so, we'll see. Just one question for you, Gray. Who is the threat? <laughs> well, it's obviously Mr. Well, three, I mean, right? He's, he's like the major, major enemy. Getting Holograms. older. <laughs> um, Drake on bean sunglasses. Oh, oh, that is a that threat. That was a threat. Yeah. No, Dave is the threat. Come on. Dave is the threat. <laughs> Dave, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. But isn't the threat what Jake says to David that helps push him over the edge? No. Nothing. The, are you threatening me? There's no edge when it comes to David, Jenny. We're not Stop blaming him. shit on Jake. <laughs> no, no. Okay, this it's not Jake's him. fault at all. But possibly the threat does refer to, as well as David being the threat, Jake does threaten David. Right. I mean, we're, not, we're already talking about it. We haven't even done the summary yet. But I think that... We should talk about where the line is where it's okay to turn on David. Yeah. Because right? it, it probably definitely I mean, gets crossed in this book. But like you're sort of line. saying, Tobias should, says the line. given what David had done up to that point, should Jacob threatened him then? Right? I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. You but, can talk about like whether logistic or like in terms of like a practical outcome it would have gone right, better. Right. Let's have the summary and then we can talk about whether there was ever any hope of David not being the worst person in the world. That's yeah. a different question. That's a different question. But let's have the <laughs> summary. Like, Yes. This is my 60-second summary. All original work. Yeah. Not at all crypt from a summary that Gray wrote that she no, thought she was going definitely to definitely not. Uh, so weird. we continue where we left off last time. This is the second part of a trilogy That's right. of Animorphs books. Uh, so we still can't talk about our true feelings about <laughs> David Jenny. Really? Really? Uh, maybe. <laughs> There's a new Animorph in town, and he seems terrible. Spoiler alert, he is. <laughs> Just in time for them to go on their most important mission, protecting the leaders of the free world, which for some reason are the U.S., Japan, Russia, <laughs> Germany, England, and France only. Nothing else is free. Yeah, so they're uh, conveniently, they're all all these world leaders are going to be at a hotel resort in the town that the Animorphs all live in. But there's a lot of security, both human security because of the six different nations, but also uh, the Yurks have already kind of infiltrated a little bit. 
They run into a security guard when they're scoping out the place in Birdmorph, and the security guard has Dracon Beam sunglasses, which are set to a low level of stun, which he uses to zap the birds, and real birds, of course, run away, so they have to pretend like they're real birds and run away when they get zapped. Jake's parents go out of town for the weekend, and David runs away from Cassie's barn and breaks into a hotel because he misses TV. Jake goes to the hotel and says, you can't do this, you have to pay for this. You have to do what I say. He totally dads David. And David's like, whatever, man, I'll follow you during the mission. But when I go home, it's it's me. And Jake is like, no, you do things our way or else. Dot, dot, dot. See? The threat. The like threat. I said. Just saying. But anyway, David's being kept in line for now. And Cassie figures out a way to get into the conference. A bunch of their normal morph strategies aren't going to work. Because, you know, bugs can't go that fast. And other like, bigger things are conspicuous. So... One of the Animorphs, Jake, in this case, morphs a dragonfly, and the other Animorphs jump onto Jake as fleas and ride him into the conference. While they are scoping the place out, they uh, are short on morphing time and can't find a safe place to demorph. There are people in all the different rooms. It's really hard for them to find a safe place. Jake gets trapped in a spider web, which runs out the morphing clock, and in a, in a desperate turn of events... They almost get trapped as fleas. Uh, Marco, in particular, when he morphs out, he just becomes a giant two-foot flea and and can't escape until Cassie calms him down. And then he just barely manages to morph out. Okay. Uh, And they've landed in this ballroom where there's going to be some kind of ceremony with all the heads of state. And the ballroom conceals the Yurk's master plan, which is to have a Yurk pool jacuzzi hidden inside a holographic pillar in the center of the room and to have each of the heads of state walk out of view of everyone in the room behind the pillar and get abducted into the pool and replaced by a holographic projection of themselves temporarily uh, while each world leader is infested one at a time that explanation probably didn't make sense to you the listener but it doesn't make sense to me (laughs) or the animal it makes perfect sense what are you talking about ted um Well, we might get into it. Um, So the Animorphs decide... Oh, thank you, Greg. It makes no sense moving on. Um, So the Animorph plan, of course, makes tons of sense. They, their plan is to knock out the guards inside the pillar and then kidnap the heads of state themselves and then persuade them that the alien invasion is real by having Axe demorph in front of them and hopefully not get noticed by the Yurks or anything. Of course, what they realize is that when they go to stop the event that's happening, the event was actually scheduled for tomorrow, and Visser 3 has set a trap for them by pretending like the event was going on while having a hologram projected. So the Animorphs were hiding inside a hologram, inside a hologram of the event, but Visser 3 also had a third hologram of hork guards, which the Animorphs had to see through in order to escape. Because, of course, how is Visser 3 going to sneak all those hork guards in? Anyway, Mr. 3 has a really bad plan, but he has one clever thing going on, which is he he says, I know one of you is probably that kid David, and hey, that kid David, come to my side, and I'll let you and your parents go free. And David says, yes, I will do this. And the Animorphs are like, oh, crap, don't let David go to Mr. 3. But then David switches sides again, attacks Mr. 3, there's a standoff, and they both retreat. So... Jake has a bad feeling about David because he was about to sell them out to Visser 3 <laughs> during this fight. And he decides that he and X and Tobias are going to post watch 
uh, over Cassie's barn where David's Because the three of staying. them can totally handle David. Because they, they can totally... I mean, what's, what's one Animorph going to do against three Animorphs? Right, and yeah. No, David, of course, he flies away in his Eagle Morph. He's flying back to his, his old house. Tobias goes on ahead because Axe and Jake have to morph to catch up. And they don't hear anything from Tobias. They can't catch up to him. And when they do find David, he's watching TV in the ruins of his destroyed house next to the body of a dead red-tailed or a presumed dead red-tailed hawk. And David says, oh, hey, Jake, what's up? And Jake is obviously overcome with rage. He's like, you you killed Tobias. What are you doing here? And David's like, oh, killed Tobias. What do you mean? He's just a bird. He's not a person. And he says... You really think thought I was going to turn you all over to the Yurks? I'm not that stupid, but now I can do whatever I want. I can be a millionaire. And, you know, the Yurks are going to keep looking for me, and I know you're going to keep looking for me, but, you know, there were six of you, now there's only five, and soon there are going to be four. So David does this whole, like, villain monologue, and then <laughs> tries to kill Jake. Jake escapes, he chases David, and David and Jake uh, decide to settle the question of which... Battlemorph would be stronger, Jake's tiger or David's lion. And they fight on top of the mall mm-hmm. and on top of a skylight, which breaks. And as they fall into the mall, David the lion bites Jake's neck and draws blood to be continued. Wow. So what did you think of this book, Ray? The thing about it is that a lot of it's about David, and I really don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> so you, So you don't find it, like satisfying in like a really terrible way because I really enjoyed all the stuff about David I was like yes he's so evil it's the worst he is so (laughs) evil I mean he's just a cartoon villain at this point he has a monologue (laughs) he like kills Tobias in in his weak state we've had all this foreshadowing of how much golden eagles Mm. like to kill red-tailed hawks and now we see that that is true he has the whole like he's just he's a cartoon and that is fun to hate but also (laughs) yikes yeah i really like i liked this book more than i expected to i really enjoyed the like whole action sequence in the middle with the hologram inside the hologram and then jake figures out it's inside a third hologram and it was just a very, like, fun, action-packed thing. And then you also have this thread going through of, like, is David a threat? How much is David a threat? Can Jake contain the threat? Like, will this be okay? And then it turns out, nope, David is a huge threat, and it's a huge problem. And it's just really interesting to watch sort of, and not exactly the evolution of David's thinking, but, like, watch as it gets revealed as he, like, really commits to this course of action and, like, turns on the Animorphs. I do kind of wish it were more plausible that David <laughs> is, could be working for them. Jake holds out hope for David, like, yeah. maybe a little longer than is necessary, <laughs> despite what I was saying before. But yeah, I, I really like this one. I, I think it's such a good Jake book because yeah. of all of the decision-making he does. I think he comes off really well in terms of his leadership stuff, even though yeah. he's making hard choices. And he's not perfect, but he does I also like David because of the way that he brings out the good and bad in all of the different Animorphs in yeah. different ways. It's the kind of it's a kind of test that they've never faced before. Mm-hmm. It, interestingly, like off the top of my head, I can't really think of a good Marco moment from this book. But he had the whole <laughs> last book, right? He, I mean, but, there was. Uh, I think all the other Animorphs have good interaction with David. Oh yeah, there, there's not. There, there's a little bit of interaction. There's, there's a really interesting Marco Cassie interaction we should talk about. Yes, but mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Not. I feel like they haven't all had. I don't know that Rachel... Oh, Rachel does have a little bit of interaction with him. Yeah. Yeah. Or or even just the bit in the battle where, like, Jake is like, 
Rachel, you need to talk some sense into David. <laughs> and Rachel punches him. <laughs> Which is, of bear. course, what Jake meant. Like, well, that is right, exactly just, what he meant. It's so funny. Yeah, that's... <laughs> he's like, we need him to shut up. Rachel, talk some sense into <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that Marco gets so much in the previous book. And I think our discussion has shortchanged him a little bit because he really sees through David. Yeah. And I know you guys were trying not to spoil it for me. Um, <laughs> I felt I felt kind of bad. I was like, I'm defending this guy. I know he's like the worst person in the world. <laughs> I feel like anyone listening who's read the rest of the like series is going to be like, why is she saying <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's... Do you think it's better, like, would it be better if he were a more nuanced villain, or is it actually good that he's almost the worst in every way possible? I actually didn't, I don't quite agree that he's a cartoon villain. I mean, he does have a monologue. He is, like, definitely extreme. But I felt like, I feel like the thing with a cartoon villain is that they just have to be evil for the sake of evil, because they're the antagonist. And with David, we really do get to watch, sort of, they think he's an ally. It seems like maybe he has a chance of being an ally. Oh, no, actually, he has some really disturbing opinions. Okay, he's super off base, but I guess I can see how he's letting his own, like, issues, like his, some some of those issues are just being a jerk. But he's letting that, like, get in the way of other things. Like, you can sort of see how he gets there. Like, it felt plausible if only because he started out as a bad person. I think my only caveat to that or nuance to that is that that is the way that Animorphs evolve in their opinion of David. Mm. They start off thinking, oh, he's like some kid who kind of oh, fell into this. so you Maybe think he's the an whole ally. time he was never on their side in any way. I think that this is... So the most telling for me moment about David, it actually happens twice. Two times he says, at least once it's Axe and Tobias, and once it maybe it's just Tobias, but he says... They're not human. They don't count. Mm. Right. And mm-hmm. his definition of human is so off base. Oh, yeah. Especially in the larger morality that we've been talking about in these books. Mm-hmm. And I do not think that that is something that happened in the last two oh, days. Oh, no, no, no. I think that this is a child who does not understand empathy or compassion or who pe- what, what makes a person. Yeah. And I don't think that the development in this book is, here's David's real personality coming out. I think it's the Animorphs really, really realizing what his actual personality yeah. is. Well, that's, and I think the the thing at the end where he's willing to, most people aren't willing to kill a bird sort yeah. of like for fun. Yeah. And that's like the kind of thing that, again, you, you would say about like, oh, it's a warning sign if a kid is like torturing small animals that they don't have empathy, right? Mm-hmm. So like, it's the kind of like that, to me, that that's also a clear red flag. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's really a classic That was sign. a huge red flag in the first book, right? I mean, and it, that was, like, the first time when I was like, oh, oh no, he's not just, like, a little <laughs> bit of a jerk. He's like, and when we, I got to that part in the book and I texted Ted, I was like, darn it, we're not going to be able to convince Gray he might be a good person. No. <laughs> because of this moment. This is, this is the moment. There are some other, there are some other things, just the way, I, I think the way David is written is really clever mm-hmm. because there are some things that he says, like, when they're talking about how they don't all have a seagull morph, David's like, oh, yeah, I'll morph the golden eagle, and then I can bring down a seagull. Mm-hmm. And then later, he, when he acquires the seagull DNA, he's like, okay, so now his DNA is mine, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, none of the other animorphs talk about it that way, it's right? True. So it's just like little, they're like little turns of phrase that yeah. make him stick out. I guess, I mean, I, I think of cartoon villain as an inherently derogatory thing. Like, 
not a good villain, just a cartoon. Like, and I don't, th- oh. I think that he's a very well done villain. I don't think he's just like a cartoonish, I don't know, we need a bad person. No, I think I meant, yeah. My, I think maybe you didn't mean what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I just meant he's a very stereotypical villain. Like, he, he kind of, there's not a lot of nuance to David. There, there's yeah. very little that he does or says that makes me think, oh, well, actually, he's, he, deep down, maybe he's just misunderstood. Oh, yeah, no, that is true. He is not misunderstood. He is, in fact, a bad person. Checks all the boxes of bad guy. One thing that I do think is an interesting question, because I think he is that bad guy all along, but, like, I, I would love to know a little more about, like, what he was thinking the whole time, like, when he first got brought into the whole Animorphs thing, was he, like... Just biding his time seeing how, like, the lay of the land and figuring out his moves? Like, was he thinking, maybe I do want to be a part of this, maybe I can make this work, but then he felt a little too excluded, and so he decided, like, no, this isn't worth it? I, I mean, I don't think, I don't want to be as hard on the Animorphs as I was in the last episode, because I think David's <laughs> a real piece of work. But oh, yeah. th- I think that they could have worked with him. Or found some other way to get a... Like, they could have done something different than what they did in order to prevent things from escalating the way that they have. Yeah. I think in particular, Jake's approach to... Uh, Jake's sort of like, I'm the authority here approach is is, is exactly the wrong thing to do yeah. with David, right? Like, the thing later where David has potential... He's sort of like turned cloak and then turned back. Mm-hmm. And all the Animorphs are kind of like fake pretending yeah. <laughs> to be nice to him and then like egging on feeding his ego right that i think that manipulation is like actually working on oh yeah him, right so i think that were the animorphs more willing to be kind of like manipulative and play into like delusions of grandeur oh david you know you're going to be so <laughs> cool and smart and powerful like just have to go along with us you know let us show you the ropes like oh man you're you know like if they had taken a, a less genuine approach and a less moralizing approach with David, <laughs> they might have been able to work with him more. I think he's still yeah. kind of unstable and like that probably, right, as Greg was saying last episode, just leaving the kid in the alley would have led to a much better result that is uh, for them. But like, I think there's some psychological nuance in the way Dave, David stubbornly reacts against yes. the pressures the Animorphs that are put are putting on him. And he he has a pretty wide range of emotions going from, like, when he's afraid or vulnerable, I think he's pretty genuinely afraid or vulnerable. He's really mm-hmm. ping-ponging around. Like, I don't think it's... He's not, like, some emotionless mastermind who's like, yeah. who's, like, a puppet master who the whole time was planning to kill them off one by one. But he does... I agree with Gray that he has sort of this... Like, he doesn't have a good core it seems like it's not like this is all on top of like oh but he's fundamentally a good person but that's i think i mean maybe that's that's, like not really a thing (laughs) maybe but like we've seen all the other animorphs struggle with morality but like really want to do the right thing and i feel like he is sort of missing that and i think even if they had somehow seen this coming like recognized what kind of person he was very quickly and figured out how to manipulate him into working with them, it would never have been a sustainable situation because he was never, like, they would have had to continue, continually manipulate him and, like, be extremely strategic about it. And, like, what on earth would ever be worth that to them in that, like... Yeah, Yeah, but, like, if in the first Animorphs book, at that thing at the York Pool at the end... What if it had ended with all of their identities being discovered 
and everyone they know in their families being infested. And then the Animorphs are all like underground, oh, like on the run, isolated as just like a band of five, but they, they've completely been cut off from their previous lives. Like mm. they probably would have fared a lot worse. <laughs> and so David's main argument is I have nothing. Yeah. You guys have everything and you expect me to follow you like you're the cool you're the cool yeah. kids. You're the cool well, Animorphs club. Let's also think about like what if it had just been someone else? Like what if someone else had joined them 20 books in? How would that how would that have gone? Like I feel like they didn't do a great job of onboarding him as we talked about, but like I feel like with someone else there would have been more opportunity to form like connections and maybe improve that. Sorry, what were you going to say, Greg? No, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, yes, they can manipulate him by feeding his ego, but to what end? Even if you had to do that for every mission, you would really never get to a place where he was sort of one of the team. And that's his one of his big arguments. I have nothing, and you guys are making me feel like an outsider. I've always been an outsider. Nobody likes me. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> but there's oh, the other thing about that is that He's trying to portray himself as this outsider that they're bossing around and, like, nobody likes me. But he's also not kind of entering into the spirit of the thing in the way that he would mm-hmm. need to in yeah. order to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And so I think he yeah, has a little self-fulfilling. It's yeah. very self-fulfilling. And, and so I think if it had been a different person under different circumstances who had joined them 20 books in, Obviously, this would have gone very differently. And I also think that if David had been there the first night, it would have been very different because I think they would already be sold out to the Yerks. (laughs) I I don't think that there's any time in which, any way in which he could have joined them. Because to some extent, you're right that, you know, he he has lost everything in the last few days and maybe we should cut him a tiny bit of slack. But he, and he says that, he says, I've lost everything. None of you understand. Mm -hmm. And he just, right before he says that, talked about Axe Tobias. It's like, no, you did. <laughs> you're not the only one. And they have managed to somehow still be in this fight and work with their found family and like do the things that need to get done. And even if sometimes it's hard and they probably want to be a little, I don't know, sad about the way that their lives have gone, they still do what they have to do. To get done, and and David is none of that. Yeah. Gets no credit from me. He reminds me of Chapman in that regard. Oh yeah, right. It was sort of we kind of marveled at how willing he was to sell out all of humanity mm-hmm. on kind of shaky footing. <laughs> David does seem to be similarly. Um, I don't know. Willing to make bad bargains. Yeah. yeah. He really is such a great foil for the Animorphs. Like, mm-hmm. even, you know, because Marco kind of gets a bum rap. He's, like, maybe the Animorph with, like, the most questionable relationship with morality. But, like, it's more that he has a different outlook on morality. Like, his moral code is a little bit different. His perspective's a little different than, like, Cassie's. But he still chooses the right thing in a way that, like, David doesn't seem... Ted's making a face. No, well, Marco understands how the world works and is looking out for himself, right? David is like, he's he's problematic strategically because all of the things that he is trying to do may work for him in the short term, but will not work for him in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. how does that, if he successfully turns cloak, Viscer 3 is just going to infest him or kill him, right? Yeah. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't have the context. Whereas, like, 
Marco's skepticism is very like protective of himself. But I think but you think Marco's primary motivation is looking out for himself. He wouldn't be an anamorph if that were the case. Yeah. Like that's not what he's doing. I mean, he has people's backs in the fight. He threw a chair at Fisser One to protect Rachel. Like he. I think he. I think that if. I think that what he said in book seven is true. If he thought the Elmist could get him and his family mm. out and safe, that might be enough for him. Yeah. He might he might turn Maybe. his back on the war yeah. if he didn't have but such personal stakes. But that's also not mistakes. quite looking out for himself. Like, there's a real difference between looking out for your family and looking out for yourself. There's still an element of selfishness in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just saying I see Marco a little differently. But. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that part of it is Marco just getting a bad rap because he doesn't come across very well a lot of the time, the way that he uses humor and the way that he um, can be manipulative and that kind of thing. But I do think a lot of that is is what you say, like sort of a sense of self-preservation more, like emotional self-preservation. He teases people and pushes them away in order to protect himself. Mm-hmm. But I think from his motivations, he's very now very on board with like saving the world from the Yerks and like being there for his team. So I think you're right that of the Animorphs, he's maybe the most questionable from a morality perspective, but like on the spectrum. Well, that's why well, it's so I great mean, to I don't, think, I don't think it's a spectrum. Yeah. I want to throw, <laughs> throw that idea away. I, I'm not yeah. saying that Marco is like more immoral than anyone else. I'm just saying that I think his he understands that what it means to lose to the Yerks is like mm-hmm. an absolute loss in a way that mm-hmm. David sees that, oh, well, like maybe because I'm yeah, so good at talking, I can yeah. just sweet talk the viscer yeah. and waltz out of here, okay. Right? Like, I just think that Marco has a very good sense of what is possible. <laughs> That's um, a good so point. If yeah. he, if Marco thought that Visser Three was someone he could negotiate with, he would. But he knows that Visser Three cannot be negotiated with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, David seems like I don't know if delusional, short-sighted, like something like that. He just is not just like immature. You know, yeah, I don't know. he's he's letting his own resentments and like the whole school metaphor is kind of amazing and also oh, very yeah. telling. Talk about that. Where he's like, I should find it in my notes. Like, haven't even pulled in my notes yet. It's like. You and Marco and Rachel and Cassie, you're like this clique or something. Like, do what we say or you can't be one of the popular kids. My family used to move around a lot. I was always the new kid in school. I got used to being pushed around by the so-called popular kids. That's all this is. And, you know, he goes around for a while and Jake says, you murdered Tobias because you think this is some stupid school thing. And like, yeah, thanks, Jake, for calling that into perspective. Because like, what the crap, David? You're sitting there next to like Tobias's body being like, Mm -hmm. you guys are just like, you think you're the popular kids. You can push me around and like. It is so, like, this image of himself has gotten so big in his mind that it's blinding him to, like, these much more important things. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think that actually that's... Um, I, I looked up school to see if I could find that <laughs> quotation. And they're, they're, it comes up a few times. It comes up a few times, but um, one of them is when he's, he's trying to explain that Jake... Uh, isn't in charge of him when they're not on a mission. So he mm. says, it's like school and home. It's like being in an anamorphous school and you're the teacher, the principal or whatever. But then after I go home, you don't tell me what to do anymore. But immediately before that is when David's doing this whole, uh, I'm allowed to break laws because my life is so sad. Uh, I have no home. All right. My family wants to turn me over to the Yerks. What am I supposed to do? Keep living in that barn. It's easy for you, Jake. You have a family, you have a home. You all have homes. You all sleep in beds at night and watch TV and eat at a table. Not all of us, I said. Not Tobias. Not Axe. Axe isn't even human. Neither is Tobias. I am. Yeah. And it's like, I am so mad at you for that sentence. I mean, that is 25% of the way into this book, and I was 
so enraged that I had a hard time calmly reading the rest of this book (laughs) because that's, I think, as I said earlier, like, I feel like that's the heart of David's issue is they're not human. Yeah. Okay. Well, they're not homo sapiens, but they are people. Yeah. It's sort of a weird moral issue. Like, that's not, you're saying that there are things about him that are stereotypical. That's not really very typical, I feel like. Getting, like, you think about, like, people in real life who, like, it's they're not immoral because they're saying, like, maybe, I mean, you could make kind of maybe make some, like, racism. That's what I was going to say. Like, other, like, people of other races are not human. When you dehumanize another person Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you become less human yourself. It's very Terry Pratchett. People as things. very Terry Pratchett. When, When people become things you're on the wrong path. And I think it's it's especially important in science fiction in a book like this, there is no way that David could have been useful on Liren. He could not have helped with Jeremy because those those <laughs> yeah. people would not be people to him. Why are we helping the Lirens? They're he just would have, frogs. He would have killed Karen. Yeah. Why why are we helping these Hork Bajir? They're just, you know, big dumb lizards. Like the, he would not have been a, a good person to have on those missions because he would not see them for their basic personhood. Right. Can I just make a comment that we should feel free to cut? I feel like in like five years, David's totally going to be an incel. David is already an incel for all <laughs> intents and purposes. And you should also cut this, but this book was written in the late 90s and he's one of the kids from Columbine. Yeah, I had that thought I mean, too. He just is. Oh, man. No one likes me. I'm an outsider and it's because you guys suck, not because yeah. I'm not making it like, you know, and I'm whatever. But like that is who this right. Child Sometimes is. kids are outsiders and it's not their fault. But yeah. Right. And that is not what is happening here. Yeah. This is someone who is deliberately setting himself against other people and mm-hmm. against this group that is trying to welcome him and he is doing it because he thinks that the world owes him something. Yeah. And I am like I'm so it's such a good characterization of that kind of person, and I am so appalled by it. But cut off. No, well, I think we could keep the last bit there, but we're probably not cutting that. So the birds aren't people thing. I think it's so interesting that this is two books after nineteen, where the whole lesson was that Yorks are people, right? So it's like it's so interesting to see a kid who won't even give grant that humanity to buy to Tobias. Yeah. And there's this moment that really jumped out at me in this book where. Tobias is kind of doing one of his riffs where he's like, oh, seagulls are the worst. You know, they're just almost as bad as crows. And then David is like, I guess Tobias is some kind of bird racist, huh? And everyone's like... Cassie's like, no, those birds aren't the same species. And and then Cassie just like very politely says, actually, yeah, they're different species. So it's not really the same thing at all. (laughs) Uh, But I think that that also says a lot about... Yeah. Like, he's making this... The fact that he thinks it's funny, the fact that he's sort of saying like, oh, well, like, Tobias is like a bird racist. Just so like I can be. People like yeah. you and I are kind of racist too, right? He's looking like, for allies, yeah. Yeah. Well, and immediately before that, what he says is, Tobias is like really into the whole bird thing, isn't he? Yeah, what the heck does that mean? He is permanently and forever a bird. A casualty so of this you war. you can shut up. <laughs> Is a thing that you can do right the heck now. Yeah, he's asked. just he's just into the bird thing. That's what it is. He's, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's really into it. He like seems to know a lot about birds. I wonder why. Yeah. Who cares about birds? Yeah. I, do I like haven't him. really picked up on that, but that is a very telling comment. It's such a telling comment. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's just so dismissive of everyone else in, in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't like him. So 
I think we've, I, I'm not saying in any way that this justifies David, but I do, I mean, we've pretty firmly established that, okay. But I do think it is still really interesting. Not only is he a foil to the other Animorphs in terms of like his moral stance and his approach to the war, but it also is, and I think I said some of this in the last episode, it is so interesting to see the contrast between his position stepping now into this group and the way that they're all so connected to each other mm-hmm. and that the way that they're all so experienced. Like, it really hit me with the scene where they're deciding to morph the fleas and, like, board the dragonfly. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, we're not doing that. We're not morphing the fleas, right? Right? And he looks around like he's expecting to find out that they're joking. And kind of mm-hmm. no one really responds or they don't really get into it with him. And you can see how, like, this is such an out-there idea to him. And they all just, like, take mm-hmm. it on board. And he is so many steps behind them and doesn't really have a way in. And granted, a lot of that is his own fault. But it really... No, but, but I see what yeah. you're saying. It's just because the, the animals, they, it's, of course, it's impossible for them to relate to someone who yeah. has to catch up to all this right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like and they someone who's inherently difficult to relate to. Right. They didn't do bugs until behavior. book six, right? They had a lot right. of, They had a lot of experience. And... They're sort of, they would, like, crack jokes about things. Their sense of humor is probably a lot different than it would have been originally, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think David and Marco might have gotten along really well if they had been around together since the first book. Yeah. At maybe. least at first, right? <laughs> yeah, like, right. Maybe yeah. they, would have, they would have competed for the same space, but maybe they all both would have been like, oh, this is so crazy, you guys, yeah. you know. They would have been each other's allies in book one, yeah. So I have two quick things on that. One is Marco does one of his delightful summaries of what is happening. <laughs> yes. Um, and he, he does a summary of kind of the first chapter and all of the bad things that happen just in the first chapter. And he says, well, I'm in a cockroach body, just fell out of the bottom of a spaceship belonging to brain-stealing alien slugs while trying to save the President of the United States, was rescued by a girl who's temporarily a bald eagle and a guy who's permanently a red-tailed hawk, and yet it all seems normal somehow. Like, okay, <laughs> that's just to be expected. It's finally happened, hasn't it? I've gone insane. Dilly 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 loopy. <laughs> Hilarious. So that's so I do think you're right that like actually he and Marco both have a similar approach of like the, this is the plan? Are you sure this is the plan? Because this does not seem like a good plan. They are often correct about this. Yeah. But I also think that while he and Marco are competing for the space of kind of second in command lieutenant, I think he and Jake are also in competition, both, like, literally and kind of metaphorically in this book, because there's a little bit of, these are sort of two different approaches to leadership, and one of them is, we have this new skill, we should take advantage of it for our own benefit, and one is, we have this new skill, we should use it to help others, and they are, you know, fundamentally opposed versions of leadership and just yeah because i don't think david wants to be a leader i think he wants to not be led yeah that's a really good point but it's it's something interesting that happens because because this is a jake book one of the things that we see so much of is jake jake's kind of leadership style and jake's leadership style in a lot of ways is understanding what's going on would you like to read this passage jenny i this is what I have pulled up on my phone. Wonderful. Please. I don't know if this is what you're thinking of, but one of my favorite things about this book, and one of the things that like really stands out in my mind about Jake's leadership when I think about the series, is this passage. So first, he says earlier on in the book, 
I knew each of the others. Name any situation. I could tell you exactly how Cassie or Marco or Rachel or Tobias or even Axe would react. But David remained unknown, unpredictable. And then later, after David has done his sort of like, you know, blowing with the wind, goes to visit Three's side, maybe, maybe he's faking it out, but probably not, then like goes back to join them. They're flying back. And Jake says, I knew the moods of my friends. I knew who would explode and when. I contacted them one by one in private thought speak. Don't say a word, Marco, I warned. And then Marco's like, clearly was about to explode. And then David says, you know, you guys know I was just faking the big year out, right? David said, yeah, right, Rachel began. He's like, Rachel, shut up. And then he talks to Tobias and then Axe and then Cassie. And he just like, he knows them. And they have become so successful as a team because of this connection that they have to each other and this connection that Jake has to them where he knows them and he's not manipulating them. He's talking to them. He's like, he's not being dishonest. He's not like trying to trick them into anything. He just is connecting with them. He knows who they are and is getting them to do the thing that will be effective for the group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. It's such a good, it's such a good Jake book. It's a really good Jake book. Um, One other thing that Jake does really well uh, just speaking of kind of controlling the other animorphs in order to, uh, in order to help David to some extent, is um, he has Marco apologize. Marco, who is being Marco, which you he's know, being a harsh version of Mar- he's, being he's being very harsh. the harshest side of Marco. Yeah. So David's kind of spouting off about how much he knows about security, and Marco, who is not taking it well. <laughs> says, uh, of course, you're the big extra because your dad is a spy. And David's like, yeah, he's with the National Security Agency. And Marco replies, yeah, well, now he's with the Yerk Security Agency. Oh, Marco. Marco. <laughs> this is that yeah, Marco yeah. moment that I had forgotten about. <laughs> yeah, that's where it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Jake says, shut up, Marco. That was over the line, which it was. And Oh, yeah. Dude. And then Marco, he says, he pouted for a moment or two as we oh so casually closed the distance between us and the wall. And then he, right away, he just says, you're right, I was out of line, sorry. And he knows he has taken things too far. He mm-hmm. understands people so well. And it's just such an interesting, I thought it was such an interesting moment and a really good Jake moment. Like, here is where the line is. You have crossed it and I'm calling you out immediately and we're not going to let this kind of fester. And I thought that was a great, it is a really good Jake book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are some other amazing things. So the he does get himself led into sort of a difficult situation with David at the end where he's like, actually, it's kind of, it's kind of remarkable when he and Axe are catching up to David and Tobias is MIA. Axe is like, should I come with you when you're going to go talk to David? And what the, what Jake says is the only, the, our only chance to reach him is if I go alone, which is like, even at this last minute Uh when he's pretty sure that there's, there's not going to be a way to make things work out with David. He's like, look, this is the only way I see to make it work is let me talk to him one-on-one, right? Like if he knows if they gang up on him, it'll never work, right? Mm-hmm. So so even that is kind of like a great optimistic Jake looking for some third way to get through things. But then when David attacks him bird to bird, Jake has this amazing just like like tactical shuffle that he does where... He doesn't, he doesn't go with his bird instincts, so he just flops onto his back, which is not a thing that birds <laughs> do. And then he, like, waddles on his legs under the bed where David can't reach because David's bird is so much bigger. And it's, like, a great 
Jake taking charge of the situation and turning things around um, in order to be able to live to fight another day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he says something about, I knew not to go with the bird instincts, but to use my human mind. And so mm-hmm. one of the things he's taking advantage of is six additional months of experience with morphing, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was oh yeah very clever. I do think he made a major tactical error at the end because he's letting, he's like, oh, David wants to do the lion versus tiger fight, which David had already talked about. And he kind of just lets David get away with that. Like, he doesn't have to do that. He could have stayed a bird, not engaged in that fight. Like, he, this is certainly not the optimal way if he's going to fight David one-on-one with two evenly matched, like, morphs. Like, he could have figured out maybe a different strategy there. Yes, good well, point. No, but this, this to me, this is the other thing. This is the other reason why it's a great Jake book, because it shows... Jake owning his flaws in an interesting mm. way because when he's doing that, he sort of says, "There, I, I forget. Let me see if I have the the quote pulled up." So yeah, so even before it's lion versus tiger, when he's just bird on bird, he thinks I'd gone into lots of battles against Horkbajir Texans, Mister Three himself. I'd always got in hoping to win, but I'd never gone in consciously hoping to kill. This was different. I didn't want to escape. I wanted to destroy David. I wanted mm-hmm. revenge. So yeah. that, and this is all motivated by thinking that David's just just killed Tobias, right? Yeah. And so it's when he's escaping, he's attacking him, he's clawing at him, he's like partially morphed, so he's like scratching okay. up his face, he's trying to cause pain, right? And so that feeling carries him through the end of the book, right? Jake mm-hmm. is like, he's owning the fact that he's not doing this for any strategic reason yeah. at this point. He's avenging mm-hmm. his dead friend, right? And there, there are more beats earlier where he's pretty honest with his process. So they have the... Even when they're getting trapped by Visser 3, they knock out these controllers, and then they're like, okay, well, the natural thing to do is we just have to morph these controllers and wear their suits and ties, because it will be more convincing as, like, adults than as kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so Jake kind of thinks to himself, yeah, I guess this is, like, crossing a line that we'd set ourselves, like, morphing adult (laughs) humans, but, you know, it was kind of the only way to see things through, and I guess guess we'll just... I guess we'll just uh, go with it. And, you know, even Cassie didn't really object because she saw that we had to do it. And he, he at least, he acknowledges it, right? But he's like, he's not, he's he's happy to, to go down that slippery slope that he was uh, sort of arguing against in the last book, in book 16. Mm-hmm. And there's the bit where he sort of thinks like, you know, we could just kill all these Yorks in this jacuzzi in the hotel without thinking about the fact that he did this in a hospital <laughs> many, many books ago. And he's kind of like, yeah, you know, something about this doesn't feel right. I'll think about this later. And then it turns out he overhears a controller being like, oh, you know, well, if the Andalites were here, then they'll definitely have killed all those Yerks. Oh, okay, the Yerks are still alive. So, you know, Andalites weren't here. No problem. No problem. And Jake is like, yes, that really <laughs> that really worked out to my advantage. Right. He's not like, oh, yeah, this, that was the right thing to do. Right. Uh, yeah. The, the moral questions here, there are a couple of like their big ones come up. The, mm-hmm. And in both cases, it's a really interesting blend of, like, not really sure how I feel about the moral issue. Okay, but there's also a practical thing. We're just going to let that carry the day. And, like, with the morphing humans, he says, I know what you're thinking. We have a rule against morphing other humans. But to my mind, these weren't really other humans. Their bodies may have been, but their minds were pure yerk. And I was like, what the crap is that reasoning, Jake? That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, And then he's like, besides, there's no other way. Even Cassie had agreed for this one time. Which is, like, makes more sense. Like, at least that is more logical than the first one, which was just nonsense. Then with the killing the the Yerks in the pool, he says, 
Yeah, like if we if we killed them, the Yerks might simply be able to replace them, and they'd be warned that we knew their plan. Besides, there was something wrong about killing defenseless slugs. He's he's not he's like kind of keeping one foot on each side of the the question. Like, okay, practically this is what makes sense. I'm also sort of dabbling in the moral part. I don't really know what that is. Like, don't really have time to figure it out. Big mission. Yeah, and it, it's I guess the reason why I think it feels very Jake is just that like I feel like he's a little more honest with himself. And also a little more willing to be totally pragmatic, right? Like, he's he's yeah. he's not made uncomfortable. He's not worrying about the fact that he has to make these decisions. He's gotten a lot better at saying, it is what it is. When the chips are down, you just have to do something and move on, right? He's not, like, uh, he's not letting it get to him in the way yeah. that it's gotten to him in his previous... Especially in his last two books. 11 and yeah. 16 are both very much like, oh, the weight of making choices. And here mm-hmm. he's like, that's my job. I make the choices and I move mm-hmm. on. Yeah, you really see, I mean, all of them have to make choices, but like Jake really has to make by far the most choices. And especially in this book, there's just so much going on. He like doesn't, he doesn't sleep in like this entire book. He has the moment where he's like, all I wanted to do was go to sleep. Little did I know I wouldn't be sleeping for a while. (laughs) Wouldn't be sleeping that night or the next one. And I was like, oh my God, this guy Um, is going to like pass out. So there's a, there's another Jake decision thing, which is the threat, right? In that moment, he's confronting David for the first time at the hotel David's sort of like talking back to him and kind of saying these like ridiculous things. And Jake sort of says like, okay, I'd kind of, I figured out what I was going to say to him. And I realized there's no going back. Like once I say this, yeah. I can't unring or that he bell. Actually, he's like, so I'm not going to say it. And then David right. says And some David more keeps stuff. going, David keeps going. And then Jake lets it out, which is like, mm-hmm. you're going to do things our way or else. Right. Yeah. I, I forget mm-hmm. the way he phrases it. Right. But like, again, Jake is like, he's really aware that he's making a crucial decision. And mm-hmm. he just leans into it and moves on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, and he doesn't spend a lot of time later thinking, oh, you know, if uh, if I hadn't been so mean to David, he wouldn't have killed Tobias, <laughs> right? He doesn't think anything like that. Yeah. Do you, so you were saying earlier that, like, maybe there was a moment that they should have realized that there was no going back with David sooner? So I don't know. Jake is so conscious early on in the book about, oh, I sense some tension here. My gut, my gut feeling is that something's wrong, but you know, we just have to, we have to be fair. We have to be fair to David. And mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of like really consciously like de-escalating, but not confronting the issue directly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing is like, if he'd been listening to himself and if he talked to the group more, like if he and Marco had actually sat down and compared <laughs> notes, given how Marco feels about David yeah. after the last book, like they could have maybe gotten to the question of, what to do about David that comes up at the end of the book without yeah. all of this really bad stuff happening, right? Yeah. So so why didn't they, right? Is it, is it more about they were giving David the benefit of the doubt or is it more they don't want to have to be confronted with the fact that they made a really bad call in the last book and now they have to clean up that mess, right? It's I like, think it's how more much is the that second hope? one. Like, because it's not, like, if the answer to the question of what to do about David is turn into a tiger and try to kill him. Like, you can't do that in, like, a third of the way through this book. He hasn't well, done anything that would merit that. Well, right. So they, I, so when they're in this position of, like, maybe David's going to be a big problem, there's no, like, way to solve that problem. Like, so, I mean, what is the, like, acknowledging it might, like, maybe they can come up with some better de-escalation strategies, but, like... You could leave him behind. Don't tell him when you're going on a mission. <laughs> Here's the keys to the hotel room. <laughs> Knock yourself out, buddy. Knock yourself out. It's Please. not gonna, yeah, like it's not gonna get worse. Yeah. 
Yeah, they maybe could have come up with some sort of plan but earlier. Well, if they, I mean, they would have had to, like, run surveillance on him, as we see. Uh, yeah, but, like, right. So I think that's, right, being more accommodating or confronting him directly earlier would have led, right? Because it's it can be kind of like, oh, you're just going to defy us? Like, okay, well, now we're making our threat explicit, and now we will deliver the consequences of that threat when you don't listen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't consider that, because obviously that would be heartless and cruel, right? Like, right. it's only the fact that the narrative weaves it such that David goes so quickly from problematic to absolute monster that we can feel pretty great about Jake deciding to murder another teenage boy. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's, 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 you know, uh, it's interesting that they, it's like, oh, well, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt until he kills Tobias. (laughs) And and there was nothing we could have done to prevent that. We can only exact retribution. Right. Like, it's interesting that that's how it kind of It is hard to know what they would have done. Besides give them the benefit of the doubt. Because, yeah, what do they do? Leave him in a hotel room? They would probably have to do surveillance to make sure that the Yerks haven't found him. Yeah. Like, no, it's a good point. I mean, I do think that it's it's one of the ways in which, you know, I'm always too hard on Marco. And mm-hmm. in the last book, there was a certain benefit of the doubt that I was trying to give David, not very successfully, <laughs> because Marco disliked him so much. That mm. it's sort of like, well, I don't... No, and it's just out, Marco's lens. Marco's just very right about this. I do yeah. think he reads people very well. And and not to say that he should have, that there's really anything that they could have done. Mm-hmm. All of this has happened so quickly. They haven't really had a chance to kind of take a pause and step back. But they've made some very poor decisions. And I mean, start mostly that decision in the alley where they're like, yeah, new Animorph. Yes. Yeah, exactly. In fact, Jake says at the beginning of this book, there was, what else could we have done? So we made him into the sixth Animorph. I know it was like, <laughs> I can think of at least three other things you could have done in this particular scenario. Right. That, that's just, that's why, that's why it's so good. That's why it's so good is because they make a bad, it's like, I, I really like how bad David is because, because the Animorphs made a choice to include him. Yeah. Right? Like, it is obviously, it is obviously, though, it's the most dramatic narrative that could have unfolded, right? But mm-hmm. it's, it's such a, it's such a juicy issue for them to have to Right, because it came right? out of their own decision. That, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's especially interesting, I think, as you pointed out last time, that it comes immediately on the heels of 19, where it turns out making a completely terrible, rotten, very bad decision worked out fine. <laughs> you found the one Yerk for whom this would have actually worked out fine. Great job, Cassie. You know, again, you know, like, bad decisions, but the outcome was fine. And now bad decisions. Outcome, not so fine. Maybe stop making bad decisions. I mean, this is Cassie's point. All you think about is plot. Well, she says typical males, which, you know. she's That's my yikes moment for this book. Yeah, she's being a little bit... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but she does say, all you think about is plot. You always forget it's about personality. It's about character. That's the thing. It's not about, you know, whether the decision was bad or good. It's about, like, the character of the person they made the decision about. Yeah, it's a little bit about whether the decision was bad or good. And it was bad. I'm glad it worked out for you, Cassie. I really am, but also, yikes. And, And similarly here, I mean, this is, again, you know, we talked a lot in the first maybe dozen books they kept increasing the stakes. And one of the ways they would do that is point out all of the ways that this can go very poorly, right? Mm-hmm. What if this or three finds out about us? What if someone becomes an, you know, someone who is an animorph gets infested and all of a sudden the Yerks know about us? You know, what are all of the worst things that can happen? 
And also, what are where are our lines? You know, not killing a bunch of yurks in a jacuzzi, not morphing other humans. Like, what what exactly are we doing? And this book, in a lot of ways, kind of turns those on their heads because the decision has already been made, and it was very bad. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, here's what the fallout would be if you made this terrible decision. <laughs> right. And because yeah. that was so bad, yeah, yeah, like you can't let him get taken by the yurks because mm-hmm. they will know everything about you. Therefore, you have to do all of these out surveillance and following him at night and getting into a fight. Yeah. But you also like, yeah, you're just going to morph these three humans. You want to know why? Because you do not have time to think about the moral yeah. implications of yeah. this right now. You just and have to get It's just like, so far at least, the plot hasn't given them a way out, right? Like yeah. that's, like the structure of these books is set, like the end of nine, right? It's like mm-hmm. so ridiculous that they get away unscathed <laughs> from that yeah. standoff, right? Like, right. And th- there are so many moments like that where it's like, oh, well, you know, we'll... We're having a funny chase scene through uh, an amusement park, and they all get away. Ha ha! You know, yeah, that doesn't happen in this book. Mm-hmm. They just like take it really seriously that this unstable kid is uh, has the ability to morph. Yeah, like in nineteen, and... things got really serious. They didn't get an easy way out. They got like a very difficultly earned like right. miracle. Right, and in this one, we don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah they're yeah. again but... not getting. Yeah. The easy way out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you said that, Greg. I think that's what this is about. Do you guys want to talk about Cassie? I do! <laughs> Greg, I want to hear what you have to say about Cassie in this book. I have a lot of Cassie thoughts. You do? I'm not sure how many Cassie thoughts I had. I had the... the she finally uh, came up with one of my morphing ideas. Mm-hmm. Which is, what if you get very tiny things and balance them on top slightly bigger things? Can you get more people <laughs> in the same space? Yes, you can. Yeah. Great Such job. good ideas. The one thing that I really want to talk about with Cassie is the Cassie Marco moment. So yes. are there other Cassie things you want to talk about first? I mean, in general, Cassie, like Jake leans on Cassie a lot for interpretation of people. And you really see that, which I think is another strength of his leadership style. He's like, I am not always as good at this as some other people. So I'm going to ask Cassie about it. And he specifically pulls Cassie away from, like, the meeting. And she's like, you want to ask me about David? And he's like, how did you know? And you're like, Jake, it's super obvious. Come on. <laughs> Uh, and she, I mean, she is a generous person and gives him some benefit of the doubt. But he, she has the interesting insight that he doesn't seem upset enough about what happened, mm-hmm. about everything that he lost, which is, like, we've talked about how he has a range of emotions. He's not just, like, a feelingless monster, but it is maybe interesting to think about, like, is he having normal, mm-hmm. what you would expect to be emotional reactions to that. I did also like that Cassie is the one who calls him, calls David on the... Um, Tobias is racist against other birds. And Cassie's yeah. like, nope, because those are different species. And humans are all one species. Yeah. Very different. I say, as the only black person in this book. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I think it's very intentional. It's Cassie. The, so I want to first shout Cassie's praises, as I like to do, about a number of things in this book. One, her, as Marco calls it, hilariously disturbing plan with the dragonflies <laughs> and fleas. She's like, this really is the good. beautiful thing, or the gross thing, depending on how you think about it. Right, exactly. Um, but she, her obser- observation skills are on point when she sees the president wearing shorts, even yeah. though the hologram president is wearing a tuxedo later. I think, despite the typical male's comment on Cassie's yeah. part, that she wants to read it through Visser 3's ego and not the plan through Visser 3's ego is actually very insightful. Yeah. We've talked a lot on the podcast mm-hmm. about how Visser 3 is acting more in his own, in the interest of his own image and not in order to strategically win the war. Mm-hmm. So good for Cassie for bringing that to the text. And 
the bit where Jake is morphing a dragonfly and Cassie is like, no, 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 wait for the visual cortex to kick in. <laughs> then you'll be able to see. It's like, oh my God, Cassie's, <laughs> she's, she's really into science. And she's it's great. so far ahead of everyone else. Oh, and then science. when David nice. escapes the first time, Cassie's call where she's like, Hey, Jake, um, did you hear Letterman got canceled? Dave is gone. <laughs> no more Dave. Which is like such a good, yeah, yeah, no more Dave. It's such a good, like, spur of the moment uh, code they to come up so with. They do so well on that phone call. Yeah. He's like, don't worry, I'm sure it'll be there at the same time. Like, the re- usual time, the usual place. <laughs> what about other interactions between Cassie and David? Did any stand out to you? Because I had a couple. The one where he's like, no, I'll join you to Visser 3. And Cassie clamped her jaws around David's right hind leg. Sweet, gentle Cassie, as Jake puts it. And immediately before that, David is really like panicking and, and worried. And mm-hmm. she's like nuzzling him. Wolf oh, to lion, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get both sides. Yeah. You get both sides of Cassie in that, in that amazing moment. And we haven't mm-hmm. seen her do that kind of thing a lot. We saw her leap at Joe Bob Finestre when she figured out that he was killing a, a human every three days and, and then we see her leap again in wolf morph at david when david's gonna betray her people yeah mm-hmm. and the other cassie thing with david is in that moment when jake is telling everyone shut up shut up don't talk to him don't you know don't call him out on his betrayal he's sort of like oh yeah you know cassie you really didn't need to like clamp on my leg or whatever but but she's just being so fake nice to him <laughs> in a way that is really you know she's I don't know. She's being dishonest, right? But mm-hmm. which doesn't feel very Cassie. But she's like, I'm gonna find, I'm gonna find what she says. So he's he's putting down Cassie a little bit, and Jake's managed to keep them from escalating this, the tension with David. And Jake says, David seemed to relax as we flew. Then he went beyond relaxing. He started bragging, like I was ever scared of that guy. No way. Him and me, we had a score to settle, and I would have taken him, him down. Only the way it played out, I couldn't. You know, because they got Cassie and all. Yeah, thanks for holding back, David, Cassie said. I guess you saved my life. Ooh. No problem, David said. And it's like, you know, I, I wonder what, like, what's Cassie going through in that moment when she decides to say that, right? Like, how, how much is she, is she just trying to comfort David? Is she like, I'm gonna hmm. play this into this character? Like, what, you know, it's, I, I know that she doesn't believe that, right? When she says, no, when she says of it. course. And it's not very Cassie from what we've seen so far to like deliberately lie to someone like that. But we did see her do it again in, in 20 when she, I mean, it wasn't lying exactly, but it was the deliberate manipulation of like, Marco isn't scared to morph the roach or he was scared, but he got through it. Are you, you know, Mm -hmm. as tough as Marco? So does she see that as her role in the group? I don't know. I don't think so. Like, is she like in this moment, somebody needs to be placating him and I'm the best one for the job. Mm. Or is she like, because it doesn't seem to be a role she embraces a lot, but it does seem to be a skill that she can access when she needs to. I think right. it's part of her being the sort of heart. Yeah. Right? As she's kind of emotionally connecting with them. Well, like, it is what he needs, yeah. right? It's just yeah. his needs are very bad. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. His needs stem from some really problematic places. Um, so can we talk about the Cassie Marco? Oh my god, that's so good. So at one point we talked about it was probably back in like book three or something, and I was like, three, this yeah. is not the most iconic like moment of someone like all not like having trouble getting out of a morph. And I was thinking of this because this is just like it's very dreadful. It's horrifying. It's so bad. It's so bad. Yeah, it's pretty much the worst thing. So they have morphed into fleas, five fleas. And they have a minute left, one minute left 
before they will be no longer able to morph and they will be trapped as sleeves forever. Yep. And X has been very helpfully counting down the minutes and it has been very stressful. And they're all trying to morph as much as possible. And as Marco tries to morph, uh, Jake says, it was like no morph I've ever seen. The person wasn't changing, simply growing. Growing is a flea, a one foot long flea, larger, two feet long. Let me tell you something. There's a reason insects gross people out. Someday go find a blow-up photograph of a flea and imagine it becoming human-sized. It stood on six bristling legs. The body was the color of rust. It was narrow, as if it had been run over by a train. It was built of interlocking plates of armor. Its head was a hideous helmet with a ring of spikes raked back all along the top and sides. At the bottom of the helmet were more spikes, like some horrible parody of a mustache. Two stubby antennae protruded. Saber-toothed tiger teeth stuck straight down. It had two black button eyes dead, soulless eyes. It was now a flea as large as a dog. Marco, I cried. Oh, please help me. Help me. He's trapped as a dog-sized flea, and it is the worst thing ever. And I just, it w- I was so worried about him. And then Cassie, who, by the way, has in this flea morph just been crushed, like exploded, like oh, Jake yeah. was, however many books ago that was, like squished, and they think she might be dying. And instead, she has now morphed. She vaults over a table, stands next to Marco, and is like, come on, Marco. Puts her hands on him, like on this dog-sized Ignoring the sting of his bristles. I was just going to say the bristles thing. Yeah. Yeah. Placed her hands on his side, ignoring the sting of his bristles as they poked into her skin. He tries to jump, but he can't. And she says, come on, Marco. Cassie said calmly, clear your mind of all the fear. You can do this. You will morph. Focus on the picture of yourself. Form the picture in your mind. Let go of the fear and focus on the picture of your own body. And so they're, everyone's demorphing and they're watching. And slowly the armor plate began to soften into flesh. Slowly the mouth, mouth parts retreated. The spiked helmet melted into hair. Slowly, slowly Marco emerged. At last he was sitting his own self again on the edge of the table. He looked at Cassie with his own human eyes and he did something I didn't think Marco was capable of. He put his arms around Cassie's shoulder and cried. Thank you, he whispered. Thank you, Cassie. You saved my life. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's just wonderful. It's such such a wonderful Cassie moment. And it's also such a wonderful Marco moment that he was Mm -hmm. able to do that. Like, we talked so much, not so much in 20, but in 15, about how he couldn't open up and be vulnerable with people. And Jake doesn't think it's possible for him. Right, and because yeah. you, you'd have to think he's like, well, this is it, it's over, right? That's yeah. that's kind of the Marco response, is to give up. Mm-hmm. When he's like, well, the two hours are over, you know. Mm-hmm. But she's she's poetry. She figures it out. Right. And Axe says something shortly afterward. He says, I do not believe in miracles. I always said Cassie had a talent for morphing, and yet this is something I have not seen before, which I love as a, like... It really says a lot about what Cassie's made out of this power mm-hmm. of theirs, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And I'm really, like, I feel like over the last few books, we've seen a lot of really good Marco and Cassie moments. Mm. Like, there was that thing where he admitted in Megamorphs 2 that, like, oh, wow, she has a point about mm-hmm. this morality thing. And then there's her, there's, like, sort of their debate in 19, and then he keeps the leopard from eating Karen Mm -hmm. and now we have this moment and it's just like I think the two of them maybe 
I don't know, got along. They didn't not get along, but like they maybe had some of the least in common of any of the Animorphs at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And just seeing this like connection, like growing between them is just really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I like that, that he has, maybe he just has a little more faith in Cassie Mm -hmm. at this point. And that's what can get him through this at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like that we are seeing these increased bonds in the Animorphs even while maybe inside there are like some more fault lines, like their relationships to each other are strengthening, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And I they trust in one another. Yeah. I also want to say, we don't have to get back into David's stuff, but it occurs to me that this is one of the worst things that the Animorphs have been through mm-hmm. as a group. And this is David's second mission with them, right? That's so true. Mm-hmm. in the subsequent scene, he panics and he tries to betray them to Visser Three and stuff. And so, like again, not to make excuses for the things he does, but it's mm-hmm. it's a truly horrible and strange thing that he's just witnessed. And he calls it out later. He's like, "What am I going to do? Keep going on missions? Maybe get trapped as a flea?" Like that really made an impression. Weren't the ants in the second book? That was the fifth book. Not with the, oh, because they were trying to get in Chapman's basement, but they couldn't do yes. the cat that time. Okay. <laughs> no, it's a good point. I will also say there are a lot of things I like about the Jake and Cassie relationship. Totally shipping Marco and Cassie now. Yeah. They're so different. They're so different. I mean, I don't know if I'm really, like, seriously shipping it. No, but I do think that they, they bring very different things and maybe complement each other in a really nice way. Mm-hmm. I see it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we should definitely cut this, but just speaking of relationships, I really love the thing where Jake's a dog and he's like, this wasn't as fun as chasing a stick, but it was some kind of game at least. And I liked Cassie. If only she had a stick. And I was like, Jake, I don't think you're that <laughs> 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 draw, but okay, maybe. <laughs> yeah. uh, wait, I have, while we're talking about um, uh, penis-related things that we can cut, um, Jake Morse, an adult human man, for the first time in this book. Uh And he says, I didn't have any problem with this morph. You know, it's like a little, basically like the same things that I could expect. And I'm like, this this tells us that Jake is large in certain other ways that we didn't know before this time. Because as a 13-year-old boy, suddenly transitioning to the body of an adult man would be Something you would think about a lot. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, Jake's been through puberty in an extreme way, canonically. Yes, he also, yeah. <laughs> I also was entertained that he was like, and I needed a shave. I was like, he's never had that sensation before. And it's just like, oh, I need a shave. It's not like, whoa, my face feels no, but like I mean, But that's like, that's just like, that's exactly what a 13-year-old boy or like a 10-year-old boy reading the book would think it would be like to be an mm. adult man. They wouldn't think about like balls dropping and other things <laughs> happening. Like, that's, it's odd. There's a, there's a reason why they didn't, they didn't go in that direction here. But Michael Grant was not writing his most accurate prose here. Oh my God. That's, that's pretty entertaining. <laughs> it's just, he's just a big guy. Yeah, in in several ways. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, now we know. why do you think they call him Big Jake? These guys have been to gym class with him. Uh, I love it so much. 
That's what I'm going to think of every time that comes up. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so Jenny, you admit that he's only five feet tall. He's big I, in other ways. I do not admit that. I think he's big in more ways than one. <laughs> this is a 13-year-old boy. This is terrible. <laughs> Don't worry, he's fictional. He's never going to find out. How can we get back? Should we Should we just talk about silly things for a little bit? I have some Rachel thoughts. Oh, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, but this is this is not silly. Let me find... No, but there are some <laughs> silly Rachel thoughts. I have exactly one Rachel thought. I have like oh, seven yeah. Rachel okay. thoughts. <clears throat> hey, Rachel, you must have morphed to get here so fast, I said. So how come you have regular clothes on? Cassie rolled her eyes. Didn't you know? Rachel keeps a couple of outfits here at the barn. <laughs> Is it a crime to want to look good? Rachel asked, self-mockingly. Listen, I love this M- Rachel moment for two reasons. One, yeah. it's like, it's such a beautiful insight into Rachel's desire to always appear to her best advantage. Yes. But also, it's so practical. <laughs> yes. I'm going to be here a lot. I'm going to be morphing a lot. I don't like she appearing in clothes, these clothes. Yeah. I'm just going to throw some here. Yeah. And like, you roll your eyes all you want. That is thinking ahead. Yes. She's very, she's very competent, very practical, and she's, like, willing to laugh at herself about it. Yeah, She knows it's a little silly. And then she also has the really wonderful moment where I quoted this from the book, but that it got cut off, where, like, they, they're morphing the, the controllers, but one of the ties got untied, and all five, or, like, all four of the human guys are looking at it being like, uh... <laughs> and then Rachel whispered, oh, good grief, you guys are pathetic. None of you has ever tied a tie. She snatched the tie out of my hands, whipped it around to Axe's neck, tied it neatly, cinched it up, rebuttoned his shirt using the buttonholes we'd managed to miss, buttoned the top button of his jacket, straightened his lapels, and pushed his hair in place. Like, all in less time than we'd wasted standing around, or something like that. Amazing. Uh, it's... It's great. It's like, I really love that we see that side of Rachel because we also really see some other sides of Rachel here, especially like in this really intense situation they're in. Jake relies on her a lot. Mm -hmm. Like when they first go into the, the, um, the pillar and find the yerk pool, his first reaction is like, Rachel, we may need some firepower. And he gets her to morph the grizzly. Mm -hmm. And then when he needs David to, you know, stop talking to Mr. Three, we already talked about this. Rachel explained to David that he needs to knock it off. And Jake snaps and she, you know, punches David in the jaw. And uh, he is in line morph and yes. she is in grizzly morph. <laughs> Punching is yes. bad kids. Yeah. Violence is not the answer. And then you get this really interesting thing at the end where Jake has just had this encounter with David, like right before they go to the mall for their final showdown. Mm-hmm. Axe, I think Tobias is dead, I said. I think David killed him. That would be a most terrible thing, Axe said. Yeah, get Rachel. If, to- if David's killed Tobias, we may have to do a terrible thing too. Get Rachel. Like really just like doubling down. He had already told Axe to go get Rachel. And like, this is just like, this is why he needs Rachel. Because mm-hmm. they might have to do a terrible thing. And if yep. someone's going to do, do a terrible thing, they're going to get Rachel to do it. Well, they're going to get Rachel to do it. And also... Rachel is going to show up, hear this guy killed her boyfriend, and then that is the end of David. Yeah. Well, what did, what did, you, what did you make of this moment, this get Rachel moment, Gray? Well, this was the, the moment that I, this was my, like, favorite Rachel moment from other people's perspectives. Mm, they have mm-hmm. absolutely no hesitation that she is going to show up, she is going to handle this situation, it will be handled thoroughly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that that's, you know, the only thing I thought was like, hey, Jake, you know, wait for her to get there before you were yeah. thinking about whether <laughs> a lion or a tiger's going to win in a fight, but no, I, I I thought that was just, it was such a perfect encapsulation of how Rachel fits into this group. So it didn't yeah. surprise you? Oh, we do, this is a little different, but, like, we don't get a lot of Rachel Tobias in this book, but, like, there is a moment earlier where Jake's like, someone needs to go for Tobias and Axe, and Rachel says, I- I'll go for Tobias, Rachel said, and Axe. 
(laughs) That's like the one moment of like, yep. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's a really good one. I actually also um, had a brief second where I thought, maybe don't let Axe be the one to tell Rachel that Tobias is dead. I'm not sure he's going to do a great job at it. Not because he doesn't like Tobias, but just he's not the most human emotion thing. Like maybe go get Cassie, get Cassie to tell Rachel. I feel like Axe would be, especially because Jake only said like, I think Tobias is dead. Mm -hmm. Axe would be like, we think something may have happened to Tobias. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I think he's going to be very circumspect because he wouldn't want to speak too strongly. So actually, he's probably not a bad choice. Good point. Good point. I did have some other Axe thoughts, speaking of Axe. There's a lot of great Axe stuff. There's there's some good (laughs) Axe moments. Can we talk about um, his latest entry into Z-Space canon? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Please do. He's talking about... I'm actually really disappointed he gets cut off in this case. I know. Because he says... Uh, our own minds and brains are pushed into zero space and maintain contact with the morph by means of a, and then he gets cut off. <gasps> by means of a what axe? Come on. It's kind of, so like, I know that all of these, I know that this is just a, a recurring gag where yep. axe says some nonsense and just before it, the nonsense it gets, gets to too much to bear, yep. they cut him off and then they never have to do, like, make it all make sense. Yep. But I, I feel like I'm in like, interpreting fragments of a religious text where it's like, this is all I have. And I know Axe has the answer Uh and it's just uh the book keeps cutting him off. And it's like, like Andalites know that there are minds and there are brains and there are different and they both get pushed into Z space. The implications are staggering. It fits with our like consciousness is separate and you know, it's a dualistic universe theory, but we're never going to get the answer. That's also though. really interesting. Our minds and brains are pushed into zero space, which implies that I was right about the thing where your entire brain needs to be Gets intact replaced. in Z-space. Yeah. So, hmm. Another great axe moment is, um, he says, you put your wars on television for people yeah. to watch? Axe asked. He sounded shocked. Humans. What do you guys think of this? This is definitely Apple Grant's view on putting wars on television. Okay. But, so, like, sure, it's kind of like prudish, don't put violence on TV, right? Or do you think Apple Grant has more? Uh, I more mean, than that? I think it's it's more like, you know, war shouldn't be like a sensationalist thing. Right. But I do think it's weird that Andalites would say this. Go on. I don't think it's weird that Andalites would say this because I think the way that Andalites so control the message about the wars to their mm. people. One reason to have war on TV is for transparency, yeah, right? The yeah. people get to see what's actually happening. And the people see the horrors of war on TV and they can react against it, right? So I think that there's there's a little more nuance here. That might be true, yeah. One of my other favorite Axe moments. So they're they're figuring out how to get into the resort. Sorry, Gray, I just scooped your coat. Do you want to do it? No, please. So Jake is the dragonfly. They're all fleas on the dragonfly. You want us to zip in under some guy's hat, David asked? It would take split-second timing, and then he'd have to not notice this two-inch-long bug on his head. Dragonflies can hover, Cassie pointed out. Let's do it, Rachel said. What is a hat? Axe asked. (laughs) (laughs) The greatest thing about that is there are six people talk. (laughs) Without answering. One line from each of them. (laughs) It is, Tobias has an idea. Uh Uh-huh. Marco says, no. 
David points out yeah. that this is very silly. Cassie points out the sort of animal physiology of this. <laughs> Rachel says, let's do it. And Axe says, what is a hat? Wow, this is like the Animorphs cast in like six lines. That's so good, yeah. That's really great. Well observed. Did Jake have a line right before that? Uh, he uh, he does not, but he does have a line. And then what, then what he says is, I didn't have any better idea. Neither did anyone else. Believe me, I was very open to hearing another suggestion. <laughs> Okay, let's give this a try, I said. And then he <laughs> Yes, does. okay, yes. That, so there's his line. At the end, he oh. summarizes and does it anyway. Also, when they're talking about uh, your hologram technology, which <laughs> is so ridiculous, I don't even really want to go into it. Um, <laughs> Axe says something like, oh, well, you know, Andalite hologram technology would be so much better than, you know, this other stuff. And then Mark is like, well, what about the chi? Are the Andalites as good as the chi? Like, come on, man. And Axe, like, reluctantly has to admit. It's like, in this one area... Yeah. Um, and so Mark is like, come on, admit it. Like, the chi are like, you know, humans and chimpanzees. Like, humans are so much light years beyond, like, where chimpanzees are. And uh, then Jake notices, Axe got the best of Marco in the end, because he says, actually, the, the gap would have to be even wider, since there really isn't all that much of a difference between human technology and chimpanzee technology. <laughs> Score one for the Axe fans. I love to see Axe winning a test of yes. words with Marco. Yes! <laughs> I'll just ship Marco with everyone. He's not even my favorite. I don't even know why this is a thing. Axe also has uh, a line that I think summarizes many of my feelings about many of their plans. Jake is listing off all of the things that he basically doesn't know. He's like, maybe they missed him arriving. Maybe he's inside and hasn't been spotted yet. Maybe he's undecided. Maybe he just needs to think about all this. And Axe replies, that is a highly unacceptable number of maybes. (laughs) (laughs) That is correct, sir. Well done. I really liked how he called himself by his full first name when he announced himself when they spotted David leaving the bar. He's like, this is Axe or however you prefer to pronounce it, instead of Axe. Because of course he doesn't think of himself as Axe. This is just what they think of him as. Right. Though I'm sad that Jake says, now we have a sixth anamorph instead of a seventh anamorph. Screw even you, Jake, Jake. Screw even Jake you. thinks about it as the five anamorphs and Axe. How dare you exclude Axe from the anamorphs after he pledged loyalty to you in book 18 on Lyra? I'm actually still, like, real mad about that. It just doesn't make any sense. It's no. not like anamorphs is, is like... Axe morphs? People morphing animals. Yeah, there's no human in animorphs. Yeah, it's it does like human morph. It's just anyone who morphs an animal on Earth fighting the Yerks. Yeah. He totally counts. Ugh, he totally counts. Uh, another cool axe thing is at the end, Jake is like totally messed up, broken bird on the lawn outside David's house, and Hork Pajir are attacking, and Axe leaps over a suburban fence. And a swimming pool. Scoops up Jake and then leaps backwards <laughs> over a swimming pool. And Jake was like, that's so cool. How'd you do that? I didn't know and you Axe could did, do that. Right. Axe says, I didn't either. <laughs> uh, Axe, amazing. It was really great. What a badass. It's good. I feel like he often gets a little bit shortchanged in the books because mm-hmm. like, sometimes his like position in the group dynamic is a little uncertain. Incidentally, I remember hearing one of the things that Kay Applegate said like on the Scholastic website in the 90s, which I read, of course, obsessively, uh, was that the most challenging thing about introducing David was having seven people in a group conversation. Seven is so many, and it's so mm. hard to have them all say things on a regular basis so that you remember mm-hmm. they're there, and it's not weird when they suddenly speak up. And you do see a little bit of that in this book. Like, sometimes, like, one of them will say something, and you'll be like, that's not really a line that, like, needed to be that person. It's just that they hadn't said anything in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, X gets a lot of this. 
Um, yeah. There was a Kesu in this one. Yeah? Yes. Um, when... Oh, is it about David and the Lion Man? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, David uh, has morphed into the lion, and Jake is trying to prevent him from attacking controllers who have just kind of come into the room. And Jake says... He grabs the lion's mane, and about a millisecond later, it occurred to me that this was David's first time in Lion Morph, and he might not have control over it, of it, which is a good point, except that... It's not true. It's not true. He morphed into the lion the night before. Yes, he did. And we also learned when he morphed into the lion the night before that apparently at one point, Jake turned into a tiger and ran around on people's roofs. Did we see that? Nope. I don't think we I don't saw remember that. It. I, I okay. love it, though. I absolutely love it, because Jake would totally do that. He's such a thrill seeker. Like, and he's such it a hypocrite. It seems like Cassie for, like, was there. Right, right, right. Like, so obviously Cassie's hiding her horse shenanigans from Jake, oh, yeah. and Jake is reprimanding Rachel for, like, goofing off in morphs. I would just totally... like to say that was horse shenanigans. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I definitely heard something else. Go on. Uh, We'll just stretch out the S in the recording, or I'll say it again. So just plug it in. It won't sound incongruous at all. No, that'll be totally normal. Um, So, episode title. (laughs) Horse shenanigans, or what I heard, which was horse shenanigans. Oh. Yeah, okay, so you were were right about the lion. That was a good call. Do we want to talk about what it means that David is a lion? Wait, no, tell them why I was right, because I didn't say it on the podcast. Oh. You didn't say it on the podcast? No, did you say oh, it? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we asked you later, Gray. Yes. Oh. We asked you later what David's battle morph would be, and you did you look it up zoo animals or something, or you just <laughs> thought about it? I thought about the zoo animals, okay. and what I looked up was the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, their right. map. And then I looked, I walked around the map and I looked for all of the big <laughs> oh, great. predators that might not have been represented. And I was like, well, we don't have the lion yet. And it will also be good because then the lion and the tiger can have a fight. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so it's so perfect that he picks like the, you know, king of the jungle mm-hmm. to like fight against Jake. And I love that there are kind of these different beats of kind of like, he's like, oh, lion. And then Cassie's like, well, you were kind of the same way once, right? And then <laughs> yeah. there's this bit where he tackles the lion and he's like, isn't this stupid? And David, <laughs> but David then sets up this tiger thing. He's just kind of like, hey, Jake, just wondering, do you think a lion or a tiger would win in a fight? No reason. <laughs> and and then, of course, you get at the end when Jake is like, okay, you want this? I'm going to give this to you. Let's fight. Let's, yeah. let's fight to the death. It is great him setting himself up as like the sort of parallel, the rival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jake and David do have one amazing, beautiful moment of cooperation, which is they get left behind by the other Animorphs, and um, <laughs> they don't have time for to replicate the dragonfly and flea thing exactly. Right, because it took like an hour for everyone for to the fleas to be bouncing the around. Dragonfly. They're not very accurate. So Jake has David bite him on the neck to set up the dragonfly and flea thing and, and just what morph does at the he same say? time. What does he say to ask him to Please do that? read it, Jenny. David, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but bite me. <laughs> it's amazing. Also, it's genius. You can morph at the same time. Yeah, like, very so clever. Now they're going to do this in every book where Jake just holds out his arm and then all the animals <laughs> bite him and then they all morph into like a weird, you know, noodly thing. And can we talk about the dragonfly morph, by the way? Because it is so bad and so hilarious. He's like... Basically, Jake's they're, the whole reason they're morphing the dragonfly is because they have really good vision for bugs. The other the other bugs don't have good enough vision, and so naturally, the first thing that morphs are the eyes. So mm-hmm. imagine Jake 
five feet, <laughs> five foot six, whatever you want, with giant dragonfly eyes, right? That's horrible. Jake says, ah, I commented calmly. Um, and the other animorphs are like, oh, okay, that's gross. Seriously gross. I didn't need to see that. Then uh, the rest of the morph starts to kick in. So now Jake has really good vision. I can see quite clearly as the extra set of legs erupted from my chest, like hyperactive worms crawling out of an apple. And I didn't miss any part of the show as my shoulders turned green and bulked up like I was wearing football pads. And I definitely saw the way my butt, yes, sorry, my butt, suddenly began to grow and grow and grow out and out and out. Imagine this so far. Normal human boy, big bulky green shoulders, huge dragonfly eyes, enormous long butt. Horrifying. It's so bad. I then actually, he grows wings and other stuff. I actually wrote down the part, the legs erupted from his chest like hyperactive worms crawling out of an apple, even though I never write down the morphs, because that was just an amazing description. It's great. I mean, it's great. It's also horrifying. Like, just picture that for a second. Yeah, the last two books, the morphs have become gross again. <laughs> they were, like, totally fine for a while, I think because they were doing a lot of things they had done before. Uh-huh, and then all of a uh-huh. sudden, these last two books, I'm like, oh, no, I remember this. This is disgusting. <laughs> also, the eyes thing, that is, it, in my head, I know this isn't quite the same thing, but the picture on six, when he turns into the fly for the first yeah. time, on that cover, the new cover, which is like the oh, holographic no. one, it was all eyes, like just taking over his face. And I was like, oh, I've seen this before and it was terrible the first time. Will it be terrible this time? Yes, it will. <laughs> so there were some 90s things in this. There was a reference to Men in Black. There was a reference to Men in Black 2, which I was really surprised by. And I was like, why is he referencing that and not the original? And then I looked it up. There was no Men in Black 2 at this point. He was just referencing the original, because the Men in Black 2 did not come out until 2002. Interesting. So he was just saying, this is like a sequel to Men in Black. Right. Ah. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you for looking that up, because I was real confused <laughs> for a while. There was, of course, the Letterman reference. And Marco's was, favorite show, probably. Uh, and there was uh, Jake doing research on his computer, and Tom walks in and says, are you going to tie up that line all night? Someone <laughs> might want to make a phone call. I did like how Jake was researching, like, the president of France. And he's like, did Tom see my screen? Okay, well, it was just an article about the president of France. Yeah, with my lifelong interest in European heads of state. I'm sure that's not, you know, suspicious. Yeah. There's also more hand-waving about, like, Middle East issues. Like, that isn't clarified, and it obviously isn't going to be. Yeah. He's like, people seem kind of jumpy, as I <laughs> guess people are when they talk about these things. Uh, and then at the end of the Dragonfly Morph, he sees Cassie towering above him like the World Trade Center. Oh. Whoa. Which jumped out to me. There's uh, Rachel references. It's like watching tapes from Desert Storm. You know, like Tobias is the jet pilot, and we're the smart weapon going for the target. There's also, there's, they get to the mall. They haven't been to the mall in a while. And they reference the Walden books, which does not exist anymore. And the Baby Gap, which I'm pretty sure still exists. There's also a reference to the Miss Spider books, which are still around, but I think oh. are not being written anymore. Oh, I didn't yeah. know if that was a real thing or just like I assume it. they were, but I never, I don't think they were. Something we haven't brought up is the development in Jake's home life that comes up. Oh, yeah, his What did cousin. you make of that? Great. I'm excited to see where that goes. So his one of his cousins gets Sadler, Sadler ugh, gets uh, hit by a car while riding his bike and is in the hospital. Real bad. But he's going to be transferred to the local hospital. And Jake's aunt and uncle and three or four cousins are all going to come and stay uh, in in his house. And it's I imagine going to make his life much more difficult. Yeah, I really was intrigued by his reaction to that news, and I yeah. like. 
I really could identify with it because it's like, okay, I'm supposed to be upset about this, but this isn't a person I actually like feel a connection to. And so his first thought is like, he's like, I'm ashamed to admit that my first reaction was not poor Sadler. Instead, I wondered what impact this would have on my plans, which is like such a relatable guilt. Like he feels so guilty about it that after that, but like he's under so much pressure. He's already under way more pressure than he can handle. He like doesn't have a corner of empathy for someone where he doesn't have like a real close family connection. And it's also so relatable the way the scene starts where he's like, he's just, his head's full of this like world leader thing, this burgeoning David problem. And then he says, I got home to find my parents both sitting in the living room, kind of staring into space. My first thought was, "Uh Oh, I did something wrong. But as soon as they saw me, they both got up and hugged me. So right away, I knew this was something truly bad. Yeah. And that's like, that's such a relatable thing. I feel like almost everyone, when they were a teenager, sort of had that moment where like suddenly the problems that you're dealing with go away because something that you weren't expecting that's a lot worse or a lot more real suddenly takes over. And like, of course, that would happen in the middle of this (laughs) terrible situation with David and their most important mission they've ever had. But and he's like, immediately like, is it Tom? And right. then it's not Tom. And it's such a, yeah. Yeah, that's how bad it is. That's yeah. how bad it could be, yeah. how bad it feels. And it's like, it's such a really, I don't know, vivid portrait of this, like, yeah, their their real life just continues and, you know, normal things happen and sometimes really bad things happen and it doesn't have anything to do with yeah. uh, the Yerks or their situation. They're balancing so many things. And just the idea that, like, having more family in town will be a burden because he has to lie more, right? And that's, yeah. like, more important than being able to see his cousins or comfort them mm-hmm. or deal with it. I just wanted to, like, actually talk about the threat to say it. I uh, I had it written The threat as David or the threat that Jake makes? The threat that Jake makes. Ha-ha! Um, I told you that was the threat. No, you're right. <laughs> I No, I see... I see they're, Jenny they're both... was right! <laughs> They're both the threat. No, Jenny was right. The threat is the one Jake makes. That's better. I feel that we should just make that be like a a sound clip that we have on hand. (laughs) Um, I'm also going to say it very clearly into the mic so we can just have it ready for next time. Jenny was right. Okay, yeah. Jenny Jenny was right. It's like you guys know how much part of me wants to hear that. We're here for you. Um, so I just, I mean, and maybe this will play into the, actually this will segue quite nicely into the prediction, probably. Um, but this is specifically the thing that Jake thinks when David is, is talking back to him and then finally says to him is, you want to go around using your powers in selfish ways? Then we can't have you around. You're just a danger to us and you're against what we stand for. Yeah. And that's the thing that he says that he can never take back. And David's like, are you threatening me? And he says, no, just telling you the way it is. And then later he's like, it's, I sounded like I was threatening him. I was. Right. And so, he's sort of, he's making a play here. He's like, we're the only pe- family you have now, David. The only people you can trust. The only people who can help you. We're all you have. Deal with it. It's like, I can see what he's going for. I I think it was really poorly thought out. I mean, he's he will be the first to admit that this maybe is not his strength of like, reaching out to this person he doesn't understand. Yeah, I, I just think, it's like, I don't think Jake is wrong, right? Oh, no. Like, Jake no. wants to, like, basically Jake wants to bully him into seeing things Jake's way. Jake yeah. hasn't quite accepted that it's as bad as it's going to be, yeah. right? Like, I think ultimately this is the message that they needed to convey to David in order yeah. to get him to that breaking point. Because, like, you could never just say, okay, well, we'll just, like, you know, 
like they can't they can't sort of like reset things or like take it back, right? Yeah, and the the real problem is that like now we're getting back into the Davis stuff, but like what they're what he's offering is like we will be sort of a family to you. You can be one of us. But David doesn't want to be like lowest right. on the totem pole kind of like guy. He wants to be, he wants power. He wants like social status. Right. And they're offering him acceptance, but not status, not right. power. So like we're all you have deal with it is like, that's never going to reach him. Right. All right. The solution. Okay. So inter- So the, the three books in this trilogy are The Discovery, The Threat, and the solution. <laughs> you looking at the cover? All right, so it's a Rachel book. She's morphing into a rat on the cover. It's terrible. <laughs> Moving on. Um, the subtext at the top is, a mistake has been made. His name is David. Whoa. All right. It's a judgy cover. <laughs> Real judgy cover. I'm with you, cover. Yeah, I have to We're all saying it now. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we can say it now. I just, I've said this before, but it was so hard last book. It's the worst. To be like, oh yeah, David. So they have a new, yeah, new Animorphs looking good. (laughs) So it's a Rachel book. It's a Rachel book. Um, Rachel is about to uh, wake up and discover that Tobias has perhaps been killed. And she is, of course, going to spring into action in order to take down David. But the problem is that... While David is the most immediate threat, the bigger picture requires them to save or help these heads of state. And so they're going to have to figure out how to do both and in which order. And uh, the rat is to help her sneak into the conference center. There's always rats around. It's actually a really great idea. Um, a better idea than uh, Jake's, uh, why don't we morph the two chihuahuas that the <laughs> uh, president of France wife always carries around with her? Because mm-hmm. how are you going to get to the chihuahuas? <laughs> then there are four chihuahuas. Yeah, like, <laughs> there, there, then there are four chihuahuas. It's the llama problem. <laughs> this is not a good idea. Um, so anyway, so they're going to morph uh, a rat in order to get into the, the conference center and resolve that whole thing. But also, they're going to have to figure out what to do about David. And what they're going to do about David is they are going to sell him to the Lyrans and send him off world. I have no idea. Sell him? Yeah, they're going to sell him. And just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the Lyrans, who are psychic, yeah. want to have someone who thinks like David around all the time. Well, no, maybe, maybe they can help him. Oh, Because yes. remember we said they would be planet really full good of therapists. therapists. Yeah. Okay. So maybe they, that's just what he needs is a planet full of therapists. So you think David can be rehabilitated? I think you're going to need right? a planet full of therapists to do it, but I don't think it's anyone... that exists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it needs some more specific predictions. <laughs> um, you haven't addressed the cliffhanger. Oh, yeah, right. Um, so, uh, so they're falling through the ceiling of the mall. The mall is closed, right? Because it's the middle of the it's night. Late, it's, yeah. it's the middle of the night. So um, Rachel's going to break in and uh, uh, knock David out. Now, Jake's going um, gonna to pin him mm-hmm. and is, is going to be able to hold him down long enough for the other animals to get there. So he wins the fight because I feel like that's like psychologically important that Jake wins the fight. Uh-huh. And then everyone else shows up to, like, provide backup. Tobias is, of course, not dead. Okay. How does he survive? How how does that happen? Well, David's not very good at telling when 
other birds are dead or alive. And so he was very, very injured, but uh-huh. they bring him to Cassie and Cassie and, and her dad fix him up uh-huh. and he's fine. Okay. Maybe he morphs out of it. That would also make would sense. Also be even easier. <laughs> morphs out, solves the problem and morphs back. Tobias is fine. Tobias is fine. Tobias is fine. And I'm going to just <laughs> say it three times. It's got to be true. What do you think David's going to do? Did you pick I, up on his specific plan? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So he's going to, um, well, his, his specific plan was find a, another human, presumably an adult, morph that person and become a millionaire um, mm-hmm. by, like, stealing a lot of stuff. So maybe he's going to try that. And I think maybe the human that he's going to morph is the Secret Service agent or the controller that he took out already because he's yeah. already got that one. He said, I have a specific person in mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, because mm-hmm. he does because he already did that. Um, or maybe he's going to go try and sell out to the to the Yerks. Mm-hmm. Is he going to succeed? No. Okay. Because then they would know. That's true. About the Animorphs. And we've got 30 more books. So. So. We've got 40 more books. <laughs> we've got 40 more books. If you count the extras. What stops Rachel from doing what Jake wants her to do in your vision of this plot? Tobias. Tobias stops her. Aww. Just in time. He swoops in and he's like, don't do it. You don't want to become like him. We're going to tie him up instead. Aww. That's very sweet. <laughs> that's how it happens, right? Doesn't seem likely from these reactions, but that's my. Prediction. I mean, is there any world in which I would not say "aww" to that prediction? Good point. <laughs> Although I will grant you, I might not have reacted completely, you know, impartially to the lyric. <laughs> I have one. This might be pushing it. What's the hardest choice the animorphs are going to have to make? Are there other things, maybe similar to morphing humans, that they might be challenged with in the next book? That's a really difficult question, I say, as if you didn't already know that. Yeah, what other lines are they going to have to think about crossing? What um, other lines are they going to have to think about crossing? Sorry. <laughs> are they going to have to come back to uh, killing, quote-unquote, innocent yerks? Because they just kind of walked past that yerk pool, and Jake was like, I guess this time we'll let them live, which is you know, fine, whatever. Um, so maybe they're going to have to confront that again? Could be. Maybe the oatmeal comes back. <laughs> They just, they Ugh. replace all the food at the banquet with the oatmeal. Love it. <laughs> then you can tell. Yeah. You can tell who does it, whoever doesn't eat the oatmeal. Right. Yeah. Or the people who do. Yeah. Morphing adult humans, tough. you know, if it, if the situation calls for it. Oatmeal, never speak of it again. <laughs> I mean, because they've already crossed the boundary of morphing one another, which otherwise would have been my suggestion, uh-huh. but uh-huh. they already did that. Okay. Well, this will be really exciting. Let's find out what the solution is. You know why it's going to be exciting? Because it's so much worse than you predicted, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Get ready. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) Ted has turned life full of villain. (laughs) Ted's evil laugh is so good. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, Ted's not wrong. Wait for everything to be terrible forever. Cool. (laughs) Get excited. You two listeners. Yeah, it's going to be something. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. Clap. No, right. I clapped. Things. I have clapped. Um, things. Hi. But be this even louder into the microphone. I'm. I'm gonna be talk right here. Can. And David, this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>